Well, as we turn to God's Word this morning, as Steve said, we're going to be spending our time in the Gospel of John, specifically looking at John chapter 9. So as you're turning there, uh, in the mid-1600s, the English Parliament called the formation of the Westminster Assembly in order to write a confession and a catechism in order to promote religious and political unity between England and Scotland. Also to instruct people in the matters of faith, and it became known as the Westminster Confession of Faith, as well as a Westminster Shorter and Longer Catechism. And a catechism is just a series of questions and answers designed to help people understand and articulate their faith more clearly. It's an easy way to learn the truths of Scripture, and it's in a format that actually helps people remember. And the first question of the Westminster Catechisms is, what is the chief and highest end of man? Now, these godly men that gathered hundreds of years ago understood that one of the fundamental longings of every human heart is purpose. That is really what this first question gets at. Why are we here? What is our purpose? We all want to feel like we are here for a reason, and we want to be working for something bigger and greater than ourselves. We want the things that happen in our lives to have meaning. One area that's been getting more attention over the last several years is how important it is for people to have a sense of purpose in their vocations. And in 2018, a survey of American professionals showed that 9 out of 10 workers would trade a percentage of their earnings for work that felt more meaningful. To go a little further, they asked, well, how much, if we were to look at how much of their entire lifetime earnings would they be willing to give up in order to have consistent, what they felt was consistent, meaningful work, work in their minds that had a purpose? Well, they pooled, you know, 2,000 plus respondents, and out of those respondents, the average American worker of that pool said they would be willing to give up 23% of their entire life earnings in order to have a job that was always meaningful. Now, considering that most people spend more than 20% of their monthly income on their housing, 23% is a significant amount. Now, this drive for meaning is especially true for the newest generation to enter the workforce. A a survey of Generation Z workers, out of them, 70% of those who responded ranked purpose as more important than pay. And I think we can all understand this. Every single person in here has gone through life. And as we go through life, we want to go through, and, or what we look at, what we're going through, we want it to mean something. We, we want to get to the end of our lives and feel like it was worth it. That it wasn't just a random assortment of days. In the movie, Million Dollar Baby, an old boxing coach reluctantly agrees to train Maggie. And Maggie is not skilled at boxing, She has this intense desire to learn. She wants to get better, and she has what you would call grit. 
So with a lot of hard work and training, Maggie does get better. Frankie and her form a bond, and she ends up rising to stardom as this female boxer, and she agrees to fight one of the best boxers that there is currently fighting, but is also a dirty boxer. And during this match, which Maggie is winning, she turns her back on her opponent, and her opponent sucker punches her from behind. And as she falls down, she lands on her neck on the corner of the stool that she would sit in to rest in between rounds. And as a result, she's paralyzed, paralyzed from the neck down. Her value, and for her, her value and purpose in life was tied to this physical ability, her strength, her grit, her determination, and now all that was taken away. For her, her purpose in life was taken from her, so as a result, she doesn't want to live. She doesn't understand how she could possibly have meaning in her life anymore, and she just wants to die. Now, I think many if not all of us in this room, in one way or another, can relate to Maggie. We have difficult, painful, hard things in our lives, and we can't understand why is this happening. Have you ever asked God why? Why am I going through this? Why is this happening? Have you ever asked God, where are you? Do you love me? We all ask these kinds of questions, and at the heart of these questions is an intense desire for purpose, for belonging, for love, for meaning in the middle of what seems meaningless. So this morning, as we come to our text, we're going to meet a man, a man who would have struggled with these very same kinds of things. He would have had the same kinds of questions. And prayerfully through just a snippet, just a, just a small fraction of this man's life, God will help us to see purpose and meaning out of the difficult things of our lives. So, If there's one thing we want to take away from today, it is whatever brings God the most glory is the most loving for us. Whatever brings God the most glory is the most loving for us. So as we settle our minds on this narrative, I'm going to read a long section of this narrative. I'm going to read verses 1 through 38. I think it's a very compelling narrative. I think it's got really interesting parts. I even think it's funny in some parts. So I'm just going to read this all. So we read it all together, have it framed in our minds so then we can approach it. So starting in verse 1, as he, as Jesus passed by, he saw a man blind from birth. And his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned? This man or his parents said he was born blind. Jesus answered, It was not that this man sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. We must work the works of him who sent me while it is day. Night is coming when no one can work. As long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. Having said these things, he spit on the ground and made mud with the saliva. Then he anointed the man's eyes with the mud and he sent to him, Go, wash in the pool of Siloam, which means sent. So he went and washed and came back seeing. The neighbors and those who had seen him before as a beggar were saying, Is this not the man who used to sit and beg? Some said, It is he. Others said, No, but he is like him. He kept saying, I am the man. So they said to him, Then how were your eyes opened? He answered, The man called Jesus made mud and anointed my eyes and said to me, Go to Siloam and wash. 
So I went and washed and received my sight. And they said to him, where is he? He said, I don't know. They brought to the Pharisees the man who had formerly been blind. Now it was a Sabbath day when Jesus made the mud and opened his eyes. So the Pharisees again asked him how he had received his sight. And he said to them, he put mud on my eyes and I washed and I see. Some of the Pharisees said, this man is not from God for he does not keep the Sabbath. But others said, how can a man who is a sinner do such things? And there was a division among them. So they said again to the blind man, what do you say about him since he has opened your eyes? He said, he is a prophet. Well, the Jews, they didn't believe that he had been blind and had received his sight until they called the parents of the man who had received his sight and asked them, is this your son who you say was born blind? How then does he now see? His parents answered, we know that this is our son and that he was born blind. But how he now sees, we do not know, nor do we know who opened his eyes. Ask him. He is of age. He'll speak for himself. His parents said these things because they feared the Jews, for the Jews had already agreed. If anyone should, could, should confess Jesus to be Christ, he was to be put out of the synagogue. Therefore, his parents said, he is of age. Ask him. So for the second time, they called the man who'd been blind and said to him, give glory to God. We know that this man is a sinner. He answered, whether he's a sinner, I do not know. One thing I do know, that though I was blind, now I see. They said to him, what did he do to you? How did he open your eyes? He answered them, I've told you already, and you would not listen. Why do you want to hear it again? Do you also want to become his disciples? And they reviled him, saying, you are his disciple, but we are disciples of Moses. We know that God has spoken to Moses, but as for this man, we don't know where he comes from. The man answered, why? This is an amazing thing. You don't know where he comes from, and yet he opened my eyes? We know that God does not listen to sinners, but if anyone is a worshiper of God and does his will, God listens to him. Never since the world began has it been heard that anyone opened the eyes of a man born blind. If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. They answered him, you were born in utter sin, and would you teach us? And they cast him out. Jesus heard that they had cast him out, and having found him, he said, Do you believe in the Son of Man? He answered, And who is he, sir, that I may believe in him? Jesus said to him, You have seen him, and it is he who is speaking to you. And he said, Lord, I believe, and he worshipped him. What, what an amazing story. Every time I read this narrative, I'm just blown away by it, to be honest with you. And as we get into this chapter of John, oh, I need to make something clear. This chapter, like all chapters in the Bible, falls within a particular context and has a particular point that the author is trying to make. And the flow of this narrative is from chapter 7 all the way back to chapter 7, even on through chapter 10, and it's no accident. These events occurred chronologically, but they also serve in John's mind as he's writing the letter or book of John for a point. And if you remember from chapter 8, Jesus made some bold claims and very clear statements to the religious leaders in Jerusalem. At the very beginning of chapter 8, Jesus claimed that he is the light of the world. That those who follow him do not walk in darkness, but have the light of life. Jesus claimed that spiritually, either your father is God or it is Satan. And that the only way to be free from the bondage of sin and from Satan as your father is for the son to set you free. That Jesus can say these things because he declared that he is the I am, the one who existed since before time, before Abraham. And if you remember from last time, chapter 8 closes with these crowds picking up stones to try to kill Jesus for his statements. They understood that Jesus was claiming to be God, 
and so they tried to kill him. He walks out from among them because it wasn't his time for that. But he's made this clear statement about their spiritual condition. He's made a clear statement about their spiritual blindness to the truth, their spiritual bondage and slavery to sin with Satan as their father. And so with that background in mind, John then comes to chapter 9. And this is clearly a living illustration of all that Christ has been telling the crowds about himself and about salvation. And it's from this that he's going to launch into the teachings in chapter 10. That is what John is doing here. And another time, we're going to delve into those truths in that way. But as I studied chapter 9, the more I studied it and meditated on it, to be honest with you, I couldn't get past, chapter, or get past verse 3. And I've reached a point in my walk with Christ that if I can't get past a verse when I'm reading it, studying it, preparing it, then I'm just going to trust that there's a reason for that. I kept stopping there. I kept thinking about what Jesus was saying, and I, I couldn't stop thinking about this blind man. So this morning, we're, we're going to look at this chapter. To be clear, these are truths from this chapter. We're going to look at this chapter, though, from the perspective of the blind man. We're going to put ourselves in his shoes, and we're going to try to see and understand what takes place from his perspective. And what we are going to discover are truths in this narrative and that are truths throughout the rest of Scripture, and I think they're important. So that's why we're going to spend time here this morning. So with that in mind, we're going to think through this passage that we read with a narrative in our mind and ask some questions of it to help us understand the perspective of this blind man. First, we're going to look at some historical context. And in order for us, we want to ask this question, what was it like? What would have been like for this man born blind in Jewish society and culture at that time? What would it have been like for him? And to fully understand that, we need to look at it from some different angles, some different perspectives. So first, we're going to explore the societal implications for this man who was born blind. Well, in the minds of the Jewish people, the blind were regarded as specially entitled to charity. From Jewish writings, it's clear that almsgiving played an important part in Jewish piety. A saying they had was, the more charity, the more peace. They regarded compassion for one's fellow man as a special characteristic of a descendant of Abraham. A Jerusalem proverb said, acts of kindness are the salt of wealth. And devout pilgrims practiced charity as they traveled, and it was especially meritorious when they practiced it in Jerusalem. To be clear, this is taking place, this narrative taking place in Jerusalem at the temple. Josephus also makes it clear that it was common practice for pilgrims in Jerusalem to give charity. But although this is true, if we think about it from what he must have experienced from his childhood, one of the impacts would have been that he would not have been able to learn whatever trade his father did, whatever trade his father uh, performed in order to provide for his family. And during that time, that's typically how someone learned, right? A profession, they learned a trade in order to be able to work and as, as an adult, I mean, we see that in the lives even among the other disciples and even among Christ. For example, James and John were fishermen, and they worked with their father. That's actually how we meet them in Scripture. They are, they are fishing with their father, and it's a skill they would have learned from him growing up. Even Jesus, we know that Jesus was a carpenter. 
Well, he would have learned that trade from his father as he was growing up. But this man, since he was born blind, would not have had that opportunity. He wouldn't be able to do those sorts of things that other children were able to do. So you can imagine the kind of impact that would have had on him as he was growing up. And then by the time we actually, Jesus comes across his path in our passage, he's an adult. So he didn't learn a trade that would allow him to care for himself. So he is completely 100% dependent upon others for his care. And his lot in life was to beg from others for support. And in particular, we see him, he's begging outside the temple in Jerusalem, and that's where Jesus meets him here in our narrative. But there wouldn't have only been these societal-type implications for this man's blindness. There was also worship implications. As a, as a blind man, he could not fully participate in the worship of the temple. Jewish writings indicate that on the three major feasts, this is what they said, all are subject to the command to appear before the Lord, except... A deaf mute, an imbecile, a child, one of doubtful sex, one of double sex, women, slaves that have not been freed, a man that is lame or blind or sick or aged, and one that cannot go up to Jerusalem on his feet. Now, if we think about that, these feasts that we've been talking about, the Passover, right? These feasts of unleavened bread, these feasts of tabernacles that really this narrative centers around. They were a major part of Jewish life and community. They were designed to bring the community together and to remind them of what God had done for them. They were to worship God together in these settings, but this man would not have been able to fully participate. In, in these feasts, he was allowed to beg at the outer gates of the temple area. And it's at these, one of these southern gates around the time of the Feast of Tabernacles that we have our narrative. And so although he was cared for by the community, he wasn't able to fully participate in the worship of the community. He was restricted. And there's one more area we need to think through to fully understand the impact on his life. Not only were these societal-type implications in worship, but there was also theological implications for this man. We can, we can hear... The hint of this from his disciples themselves at the beginning of our narrative. Right? What do we read in the first two verses? It says, as Jesus, as he passed by, he saw a man blind from birth. And his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned? This man or his parents that he was born blind? So in verse 2, the disciples actually reveal what the prevailing thought was in Jewish society about these type of physical illnesses diseases, handicaps, the disciples assume that blind man's condition is a result of some kind of specific sin. Whose sin? Either that of his parents or of himself. Now think about that for a moment. The disciples, in asking Jesus this question, assume this man was born blind because either his parents sinned or he himself sinned. How could he himself have possibly sinned if he was born blind? Well, one belief they had was that children benefited or suffered from the spiritual state of their parents, so a parent's sins could be carried by the children through some physical malady like being born blind. But they also believed, and, and I quote, this is what they would say, an unborn child might contract guilt, 
since the evil disposition which was present from its earliest formation might even then be called into activity by outward circumstances. And sickness was regarded as like the punishment for sin and its atonement. So Jewish society at that time believed that all these outward signs of physical suffering were a result of specific sin committed by someone. In this case, either by their parents or the unborn child, by the evil disposition that this child has while they were being formed in the womb. Does this sound like a mindset in any way that we've recently studied here at the church? I mean, we spent months in the book of Job, and if you remember, the basic understanding of Job's friends was that all physical blessings equated to God's favor, physical suffering equated to God's judgment. All suffering is a result of some kind of specific sin. That all Job had to do was repent of his sin, get right with God. God would forgive him, restore him, and restore everything that he had lost. And we learned from our time looking through Job that was a completely wrong understanding of suffering. But we see how pervasive that thought was that it even is still existing in Jewish society thousands of years later from the time of Job. Now, the thing that I never thought about before I started meditating on this passage is that not only do we have this basic understanding of what they believed, but this blind man would have known that as well. I mean, can you imagine growing up, believing, being taught, being told that the reason you were blind is because either your parents sinned or because you had such an evil disposition as an unborn child that God punished you with blindness? Can you imagine the shame this man must have felt because of this his entire life? The guilt and shame that he was constantly reminded of? The weight that would have been upon his shoulders every day as he sits outside these gates and he begs for money. So imagine as we put all this together on this one person in a practical sense, Right? He has no useful skill by which to support himself. He didn't have the privilege of learning from his father the way other children did. He missed out on all these experiences growing up. He was completely dependent upon others for his support. He, he couldn't participate in the central, most important part of Jewish community, which is worship of God, fully being able to do that. He's restricted. He actually, during these feasts, he was restricted where in the temple he could go. And on top of it all, feeling guilt and shame for his condition because he had heard his entire life that as a result of either his parents' sin or his own disposition, evil disposition before he was even born. And that's our blind man this morning. So then, as we look then and we transition from this historical context and and transition here into God's glory on this particular day in our narrative, then it would have been likely any other day for this man getting up, going to the temple to beg at one of the gates where people's charities support him. This man who heard and knew what others thought about his blindness. This man who was probably convinced that his blindness was a result of some kind of punishment from God. Why would he think otherwise? And as he is begging for money, he hears Jesus' disciples ask a question that reinforces everything he's believed since he was a child. So if you can imagine with me, as he hears the disciples' questions, and I have to expect that he heard those same kinds of things from rabbis, 
he expected to hear the same thing again from this rabbi. Repeat the same thing he's always heard. And yet, so as he prepares himself to hear those words, what does he hear? It was not that this man sinned or his parents. Can you imagine what a shock that would have been to him? If it were me, it would have been a double take. Not being able to believe what I had actually heard, it's probably the first time in this man's life that someone did not make him feel guilty or ashamed of this thing that he had no control over. Somebody was actually suggesting that there was some other reason that he was born blind. I feel like I have to stop here for a moment and just point out how loving this is of Jesus. I think we can, we can easily look at this narrative and all we see is hard and difficult things that this man experienced. And to be clear, I don't want to sugarcoat it. I don't want it to feel like something is not, but I want you to understand that in this moment, Jesus is showing incredible love and compassion to this man beyond anything that we can probably comprehend. Jesus sees him, he knows him, he cares about him, and he says, there is a purpose. There is meaning through what you are going through and have gone through in your life, and it isn't punishment. It is an atonement for some evil disposition while you were being formed in the womb. It isn't punishment for your parents' sin. It has some other purpose. And I hope the question is forming in your minds right now would have been the same question in his. And if the purpose of my blindness isn't punishment, then what is it? What, what is that purpose? Why was I born blind? And Jesus answers that question. Jesus says, it was not that this man sinned, in verse 3, it was not that this man sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. Now this is a hard reality. I, th I think it's easy to read, but I think it's hard for us to wrap our minds around. What this means then is that this was God's plan for this man's life. His childhood, his adulthood, his difficulties, his sufferings, his dependence upon others, his not being able to fully be a part of the community, his not being able to learn that trade or skill in order to work. And to be clear, his difficulties don't, don't stop right here. We read the entirety of the narrative. We know what happens. Jesus heals him, which is absolutely amazing. But if you think about it, now he's an adult who's no longer blind. He has no skill, trade skill, and he can't beg people for money. And in the moment where he needed his parents' support the most in front of, his Pharisee, in front of the Pharisees, they abandon him. His parents throw him under the bus. They, they refuse to stand by his side because they're afraid of what will happen to them instead of standing up and protecting their son. And then when he does stand up for the truth, He's thrown out of the synagogue. And just to be clear, <clears throat> it wasn't like he just got kicked out in that moment. To be thrown out of the synagogue meant to be separated from the fellowship of the community. And the synagogue was the centerpiece of the Jewish community. He was ostracized. 
And Jesus is saying that all of this was part of God's plan. This was so God would be most glorified in this man, that his healing would demonstrate the power of Jesus to bring life and light. This truth about Christ would be put on display through this man. And after this narrative, we clear we never hear about this blind man again. We have no idea what happened to him for the rest of his life. Yet Jesus says this brought God the most glory in this man's life. And to be clear, this is the most loving thing for him. If you're like me, that's hard to both believe and to understand. How could this possibly, how could this, how could everything I just described possibly be the most loving thing for this blind man? How could that possibly be true? Well, the reason this is so hard for your heart, and this is so hard for my heart, is because you and I have a problem. And our problem is that we have a small, a very small view of God's glory. We have a small perspective on his glory. We, and by we I mean me, I, am so focused on my life, on my suffering, on my difficulties, I miss the wonder of the glory of God. So to help our hearts, to help out my heart and yours this morning, we're going to spend some time here. We're going to be talking about God's glory. We, I feel like we have to do this. If we don't begin to wrap our minds around the glory of God, we can't possibly understand, we can't possibly comprehend how God's glory on display in us and through us is the most loving thing that God could do for us. So to start, we want to define it. We ask, what is God's glory then? If What is it? Well, I'm going to steal a definition from Wayne Grudem. He defines God's glory in this way. He says, God's glory is the created brightness that surrounds God's revelation of himself. I'll repeat that again because I know some people are writing it down. God's glory is the created brightness that surrounds God's revelation of himself. And we can see this in scripture throughout the Bible. So I'm going to read three passages of scripture. So just listen. If you want to write them down and look at them later, that's great. But here's where we get this idea, right? So in Psalm 104, verses 1 through 2, it says, the psalmist writes, Bless the Lord, O my soul. O Lord, my God, you are very great. You are clothed with splendor and majesty, covering yourself with light as with a garment stretching out the heavens like a tent. And look to verse 9, as the angels come to the shepherds in the field, right? We read, and an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with great fear. And at the Mount of Transfiguration in Matthew 17, 2, it says, And he, Jesus, was transfigured before them, and his face shone like the sun, and his clothes became white as light. God's glory is the revealing of his nature, his character, his very essence. And the visible manifestation of this revelation that we see consistently throughout Scripture is this bright light, this bright, pure light. To help us understand the wonder, the majesty, the intensity of this light, we're going to look at a moment in the life of Moses. 
In Exodus 33, we find the Israelites are at Mount Sinai. This is when the law has been given. God has given Moses the law on the mountain. While he was gone, the people built themselves a golden calf. He comes down and he breaks the tablets on the ground. God's angry. God tells Moses to leave the mountain to go, but that God will not go with them. Otherwise, he's going to consume them. And Moses is unwilling to do this. He doesn't want to leave. He doesn't want to go where God is not going. And so in Exodus 33, he makes this request of God in verses 17 through 23. This is what he said. And the Lord said to Moses, this very thing that you have spoken, I will do for you have found favor in my sight and I know you by name. Moses said, please show me your glory. And he said, I'll make all my goodness pass before you, and I will proclaim before you my name, the Lord, and I'll be gracious to whom I'll be gracious, and will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. But he said, you cannot see my face, for man shall not see me and live. And the Lord said, behold, there is a place by me where you shall stand in the rock, my glory, and while my glory passes by, I'll put you in the cleft of the rock, and I'll cover you with my hand until I have passed by. Then I'll take my hand away, and you shall see my back, but my face shall not be seen. Let's think about this for a moment. The full revealing, the full unmitigated revealing of God's character is so intense that sinful man cannot see it and live. It is so intense that even Moses, one who spoke to God as a friend, could not see the full extent of his glory and live. He, he could only get a glimpse of God's glory, described as his back. And yet, even after Moses, listen, after he just gets a glimpse, God gives him a glimpse of his glory, so a partial revealing of it. This is what we read in Exodus 34, 29. When Moses came down from Mount Sinai with the two tablets of the testimony in his hand, so this is the second ones, Moses did not know that the skin of his face shone because he had been talking with God. Just the reflected shine of the glory of God from the face of Moses, by the way, made the people afraid. They couldn't stand to look at Moses. Moses actually, when he came down from the mountain after talking to God, he would have to veil his face when he was talking with the people. And this is just a partial revealing. This is, and it's just a reflection of God's glory. So can you imagine the intensity of the full extent of the revealing of the glory of God? It is more wondrous, more awesome, more amazing, more intense than we could possibly comprehend. You know, the sun, the sun, S-U-N, is the center of our solar system. It's the biggest object in our solar system. It's about 700,000 kilometers from the center to the Earth to the sun. It's so massive it contains 99.86% of the mass of, the entire, of our entire solar system. About 1.3 million Earths could be contained within the mass of the sun. And because it's just an, the sun's just an average size star, there are some stars that are 700 times bigger than our sun. Now the core of the sun is the hottest point. It's at an astounding 15 million degrees Celsius. Mind-boggling, right? By the time you get to the surface, it's only 6,000 degrees, which is still hot enough to melt diamonds. So really, really hot. So this sun, it's 93 million miles from the Earth, 93 million miles away from us. Yet even at such a great distance, the heat from the sun results in the life that we get to experience here in the different seasons, 
Also, even though it's 93 million miles away, it is still so intense that staring at the sun at any time of the day for 100 seconds, not even a minute and a half, without glasses can cause permanent damage to the retina. It's that intense. And we all know this. We experience this. We all understand the light and heat, the intensity of the sun. Yet even with that being true, we read this in Revelation chapter 21, verse 23. And the city, the new heavens, new earth, new Jerusalem, and the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it. For the glory of God gives its light and its lamp is the Lamb. When John saw the future heaven and earth, the entire universe is lit not by the sun, S-U-N, but by the glory of the sun, S-O-N. The light of our sun pales in comparison, pales in comparison to the light of the glory of God, so much so we don't even need it in the new heavens and the new earth. All we need is the unmitigated revealing of the character of God to light the universe. To be clear, it's so hard to try to put into words what I'm trying to communicate. This sheer, overwhelming nature of God's glory What I'm trying to communicate is that the glory of God is the most valuable thing in the entire universe, both seen and unseen. God's glory is the most valuable thing throughout all of eternity, past, future. It's the glory of God. And since God's glory is that which has supreme value, we need to understand that God then must be most zealous for his own glory. God is on mission for people to see himself on display. God is glorified when the fullness of his nature and his character is there for all to see. In this aspect of God, word that we use is we call God's jealousy. We say he's a jealous God. What does it mean that God is a jealous God? And Gruden helps us out here again. I'm going to use this definition. He defines God's jealousy in this way. He says God's jealousy means that God continually seeks to protect his own honor. And for the clearest to help us understand this, we have to go back to what Steve read before we did the offering when God originally gave the Ten Commandments in Exodus 20. And we know that Jesus summarizes the Ten Commandments when he says, what what are the greatest commandments? Love God first, above all else, and then love others. He says it again in Exodus 34, verses 11 through 14. God says, observe what I command you this day. Behold, I will drive out before you the Amorites, Canaanites, Hittites, Perizzites, Hivites, and Jebusites. Take care lest you make a covenant with the inhabitants of the land to which you go, lest it become a snare in your midst. You shall tear down their altars and break their pillars and cut down their ashram, for you shall worship no other god. For the Lord, whose name is Jealous, is a jealous God. God is concerned with only himself being on display because he is the only God. And he does not share his glory with others. To be clear, this is not sinful self-centeredness on the behalf of God. I think Millard Erickson, he writes this about this, helps us understand this. 
as the highest value in the universe, the source from which all else derives, God must choose his own glory ahead of all else. To do anything else on the behalf of God, in effect, would be a case of idolatry. And I find that to be helpful because God's glory, if we think about this, because God's glory is the thing of highest value in all of the universe, then God must seek his own glory. He must be most zealous for his own glory being put on display for everyone to see. So with that foundation then, we can come back to our narrative. And we can look at our response to his glory. We've, we've seen how Jesus told his disciples and this man, his lifelong suffering was not a punishment, but in order for God's glory to be put on display in and through him. And the question, how did, how did this man respond? What was his response? After living a life like this, being healed, <clears throat> sorry, being healed, after his parents not standing by his side, after being kicked out of the synagogue, after not having the skills, learned skills that he'd be able to live off of. What, what is his response after all of this? And that we find in verses 35 through 38 afterwards, after he's cast out of the synagogue in John 9, Jesus heard. He heard that they had cast him out, and having found him, he said, Do you believe in the Son of Man? The blind man answered, and who is he, sir, that I may believe in him? And Jesus said to him, you have seen him, and it is he who is speaking to you. And this blind man said, Lord, I believe, and he worshipped him. Just stop for a second and realize what's going on here. After all that this man has been through. After all this man has been through, that the world would say he has every reason to be angry with God, to be angry with God and to reject God. What, what, what is his response? How does he respond to this God who ordained that his life would be this way so that his glory would be put on display? He worships. When Jesus comes to him, and he reveals his identity to him as the son of man. This man, hurt and broken, he worships Jesus. Now why would he do that? How could he do that? He could do that because the revealing of the glory of God is more precious than anything we could ever imagine. And in this moment, as this man glimpses, just gets a glimpse of the glory of Christ, everything else in life pales in comparison to the glory that is being revealed to him. This is what Paul writes. This is what he means in Romans 8.18 when he says, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. It's not to diminish the difficulty of what we go through in this life. It is a comparison. God's glory is so bright, so wondrous that all else in life fades away in comparison to the glory and the wonder and the majesty and the character of God. 
think David Crowder captures this idea beautifully in his song, how he loves. This is what he sings. He says, and he, God, he is jealous for me. Loves like a hurricane. I am a tree bending beneath the weight of his wind and mercy. And here's where, when all of a sudden, all of a sudden, I am unaware of these afflictions eclipsed by glory. And I realize just how beautiful you are and how great your affections are for me. Did you catch that? It is not to make light of our afflictions, but in comparison to the light of God's glory, they are eclipsed by the beauty of the glory of God. This man, this blind man's afflictions, our afflictions can be eclipsed by the glory of God. If God's glory is the most valuable thing in all the universe and all the afflictions of this life are, as Paul says, not worth comparing with that glory, that means that whatever brings God the most glory in your life and in my life is the absolute most loving thing that could be for us. So in what ways, in what ways is it loving? And this morning I want to give three I want to give three reasons this morning why it's the most loving thing for God to bring himself the most glory in our lives. And the first is it allows us to be a part of what God is doing. It allows us to be a part of what God is doing. Think about that. When God is most glorified in and through us, he is allowing us to be a part of the greater narrative of what he is doing. As we look at scripture, we see God working out this meta-narrative of redemptive history in and through the lives of ordinary men and women like you and me. He weaves it through their lives from cover to cover, all the way to glory. And when God uses every aspect of our lives, including our afflictions, to bring himself maximum glory, he is allowing us to be a part of that larger story, to be a part of the story that points to the wonder and the beauty and the majesty of our Savior. One of the deep longings, we talked about this, of every person in ever born is the desire to be a part of something bigger than themselves, for their lives to have meaning. That's really what we're talking about this morning. This blind man, just like every single person in this room, at times wondered what the purpose of it all is. Why is this happening? Why am I here? What am I supposed to be doing? Or like we talked about last week, what if I work so long for something it doesn't happen and we see no fruit? Was it really worth it? Well, the answer for your heart and mine this morning is that the purpose for your life and mine is that God would be most glorified in and through us. And whatever God brings into our lives, whatever that is, is designed to bring him maximum glory. And that gives, what that does then is that gives everything, everything that you have gone through and everything that you are going to go through from now until you go to be with him in glory, purpose and meaning. We may not be able to fully understand in this life how God is possibly most glorified in every single circumstance, but we can know that it is true. It gives us truth about God that we can cling to, that we can trust. What is the answer to that first 
question in the Westminster Catechism. What is the chief and highest end of man? It's to glorify God and enjoy him forever. So first it allows us to be a part of what God is doing, and that's loving. Another way that it is loving is it focuses our eyes on eternity. And focuses our eyes on eternity. Not only does it allow us to be a part of what God is doing in his universe for his glory, it focuses us on eternity. Notice again what Paul says in Romans 8.18. He says, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. Paul can say this because he was focused not on the things of this life, but on the glory to come. This is the glory that we read about earlier in Revelation 21 in the new heavens and the new earth. This is spending, think of that, all of eternity in the light of the glory of God. Think about that. We looked in the Old Testament at Moses. Moses could not see the fullness of God's glory because if he did, he would die. Yet every single believer in this room is going to spend all of eternity in the constant light of the full revealing of God's glory. We will forever be in the presence of God. And we won't have to be like Moses, hidden in the cleft of the rock, God's hand over us, only seeing his back in passing. We'll get to see God in all his glory. As we're going through the hardships and difficulties of this life, remember, this affliction is only temporary. There is a day coming. There is a day coming, dear saint, when we will be free and be able to spend all of eternity in the full light of the glory of God. So not only is it loving because it allows us to be part of what God is doing, it allows us to focuses our eyes on eternity, but finally, it makes us better reflections of his son, Jesus. It makes us better reflections of Jesus. God is most glorified in us as we reflect his glory, his character, and as we more closely image his son, we become little representations of who he is for others to see. And in that, and in doing that, God is glorified. In Romans 8, 28 through 30, this is a passage that we're very familiar with, a passage that we often hear quoted, but listen to it in the light of our discussion this morning. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. God's desire for each and every one of our lives is that we would grow in change to become more like Jesus, that we would grow in conformity to Christ. And so you and I can be assured that God works all things in lives for our good. So what is that good? That good is to make us more like Jesus. Because when he does that, when God does that in our lives, he is most glorified. And then Paul follows this truth about God's work in and through the circumstances of our lives with the promise of his sovereignty over our salvation. Because God is most zealous for his glory in your life and in mine, we will be with him in glory one day. 
Those whom he saves, he will change to be more like his son, and he will one day bring to glory to be with himself. What a wonderful truth. What a wonderful promise. What a wonderful demonstration of God's love for his children. So this man born blind by the loving plan of God was used to put God's glory on display. And not just for that moment, but for all of time. Whatever happened with the rest of this man's life, no matter how hard it was, he got to be a part of God's greater story of redemption. He got to be a part of displaying Jesus' glory, and he was able to get a glimpse, a glimpse of the eternal glory that was to come, and he was able to more closely reflect his Savior who not only opened his physical eyes, but his spiritual eyes as well. And now, thousands of years later, we're still talking about how God used this blind man to bring himself glory. This blind man even though he had no idea this would happen, is being used right now in this moment by God to change you and to change me. To help us understand the wonder of the glory of God. To help us see how we're a part of God's story of redemption in Christ. To help us focus our eyes on eternity as we go through life. And to help us become greater reflections of our Savior Jesus. And when I look at that life, how could I not worship God? How could I not wonder at his glory? How could I not want God to so work in and through me to put his glory on display in that way? Maybe you're here this morning, like me, and you don't understand why certain things in your life are the way they are. What if God's purpose is to bring himself the maximum glory in and through whatever it is. And what if it is that truth, whether we can fully understand or comprehend it in this life, what if it is that truth, being able to focus and meditate on that truth that provides the grace that you and I need to continue moving forward, one step at a time, just doing the next right thing, knowing whatever happens, it is from the hand of a loving heavenly father whose desire is for his own glory or whose desire for his own glory is the most loving thing for you and for me.